Hello there, and welcome to Fuds and Film. This is our August um, episode, where we talk about the stuff we've seen with no rhyme or reason other than it's what we watched. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello there. I'm just going to get fired straight into things with the biggest film out at the moment, probably. You know what, it's probably still the Fast and the Furious for some reason, but hey, that's the world <laughs> we live in. Scott, The Suicide Squad, which is not at all confusingly named. No, uh, The Suicide Squad, which seeks to answer that age-old question of how much goodwill is generated for an audience by brutally killing off Jai Courtney and Pete Davidson in the first few minutes, and that answer seemingly being a good bit, actually, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Now, quite why there is a sequel to David Ayer's kind of 2016 Suicide Squad will baffle future historians of the era, given that the 2016 outing was just the worst. But apparently, enough dump trucks of cash were dispatched to James Gunn, he of Guardians of the Galaxy fame, to take on the challenge of making a better film than the original. Well, okay, that's not much of a challenge. I suppose it's more to make a film good enough to overcome the massive inertia of Ayers Rock. A tall order indeed. And to that end, meet the new team, not quite the same as the old team, albeit with a few deserting phases. Viola Davis's Amanda Waller recruits slash blackmails Idris Elba's gruff assassin Bloodsport to lead a team into the civil war-torn island of Valverde, probably, to destroy a problematic research facility. His team comprises John Cena's Peacemaker, who loves peace so much he'll kill everyone to get it, David Dastmalchian's Polka Dot Man, a depressed, tortured soul with so much love and hyperkinetic exploding polka dots to give, Daniela Melchior's Ratcatcher 2, who controls rats naturally, and Sylvester Stallone's King Shark, who is a shark. A land shark, of course. And so, yes, your normal service of weird goons has resumed. The team soon joined by Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and Joel Kinnaman's Colonel Rick Flagg after their separate distractionary mission goes south early on. Now, turns out the facility they're out to ruin, headed up by Peter Capaldi's Gaius the Thinker Greaves, is holding captive a giant intergalactic mind-controlling starfish, Starro the Conqueror, and releasing him causes another bunch of problems for the squad to clean up, and some amount of inter-team conflict once America's role in Greaves' horrific experimentations are uncovered. Now... All of that sounds like a fever dream when written out, and that's not far off the aesthetic that Gunn seems to have been shooting for, so I won't spend much more time recapping the events of the film, for they are silly. Now, this is of course a marked step up from Ayer's film, whose main motive appeared to be stultifying boredom. No, this film is silly and features mostly silly action scenes handled in as light-hearted a fashion as is possible given the body count, which is also silly, and the violence, which would be gruesome were it not so silly. I'm not sure there's a lot of point in me giving you much more of the chapter and verse in this film. It is very much like its trailer, but two and a, two hours and a bit of it. So if you like that sort of thing, this is the sort of thing you will like. If you must have in my opinions, they're broadly positive. It is, for the most part, a good amount of fun, perhaps flagging in the final act, but even then, the outright daftness of the finale almost counterbalances it. It's fun watching Elba and Cena butt heads, Robbie's dependably entertaining, and the supporting characters get their moments in the sun without cluttering up the place too much, and the prevailing tone is much better matched to the dumb content of the piece. I like Gunn's colourful and dynamic ways of transitioning between scenes, and the variety of somewhat abstract styles in which he shoots his shooting. It's not high art, but it's a fun way to pass a few hours. Good enough to wipe out memories of the first film? Apparently not, as far as the audience is concerned, if the early box office is to be believed. But it does deserve the positive write-ups it's been getting, even if I've already started to forget everything that happened in it. Better than the first one out of five. Yes, but Scott, what isn't? Yes. Um, so, as I say, a very low bar. 
yes, uh, something, you know, um, because th- there may be certain people who, whose name may rhyme with U, um, <laughs> who, who may be terribly afflicted with things like, you know... Don't say you watched the original one again for this. I watched the original one again. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It's so bad. It's the most it's the boring th- film in the world. It's so yeah. grey. That is the problem. I, I did watch it again. Um, it, it's something akin to the curse of um, watching all of the Fast and Furious films. Um, <laughs> this time before that film, I did not watch the whole series again, but I have been known to do that sort of thing before. You know? um, I mean, part of the is having a podcast about yeah. films, um, but still, you know, I need help. Please send it quickly. <laughs> uh, I did watch the first one again, which is now the third time I've watched it, and I, I think I've finally got that out of my system. <laughs> oh, God, I hope so, because I can't afford the therapy. Um yeah, and it, it's terrible. The only bright spot in the whole of the first film is Margot Robbie. Hmm. Um, it's such a boring film, uh, which is a cardinal sin for anything, but it's... The other big thing it does, which is what James Gunn's film very, very specifically does not do, is take itself seriously. Yeah. It's a ridiculous premise with ridiculous characters. And for that first film to take itself as seriously as it does is death. Yeah. Yes. Especially because there was some, like Viola Davis's character, and Viola Davis is a magnificent actor. She's appalling in that first film. In this one, at least she's, it's definitely not her best work, but she seems more invested in it. Yeah. And she's shown more range, but uh, like her character in the first film is done, doing some terrible things. She does terrible, well, there are hints of terrible things in the 2021 Suicide Squad, but it's all just so daft that you don't have to think about it. Yeah. The first film took itself seriously, so you suddenly have to think about the morality of it. It's like, that's the, no. Yeah. <laughs> this I film need, cannot support that. What are you doing, film? I want you to take this film very seriously. It's got a guy who throws a boomerang in it. Okay. Yes, and a man, <laughs> and a crocodile man. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> It's terrible. Um, that film has somehow spawned the two sequels, though. Uh, Birds of Prey, which doesn't have an awful lot to do with it, but is a sequel with enough references, but it's such a different film. You can't, you don't have to count it much. Uh, then this comes along with its tremendously dumb name. Adding a definite article was definitely going to cause confusion, right? Yes. <laughs> there was a newsletter from the New York Times that I get with the movies newsletter, and it's talk. it was talking about the the Suicide Squad and it's like you know this was expected or hoped to be like a a good thing for Warner Brothers and like and James Gunn being attached and things like but why hasn't it done well and is it because of the confusing name or is it because it was released in VOD at the same time or streaming service HBO Max I guess or was it because it was released during a pandemic and the answer of the writer was yes yeah (laughs) which really explains it all Yes. yes um uh, which is a pity because this is I mean, within the first five minutes. I'd already extracted considerably more enjoyment than I mm. extracted from the entirety of the 2016 film. Yeah, and it's because the total like, James Gunn realizes this is really really stupid. Well, let's uh, deal with it accordingly. Yes, let's lean into that rather than try and yeah. make a serious, grim, dark piece of nonsense out of it. Yeah, let's just go yeah. with it. <laughs> I mean, if it suffers, it's feeling slightly too like the Guards of the Galaxy with gore. 
Yeah. Uh, presumably why James Gunn had been hired because he was sacked by Disney and uh, but knew how to handle this sort of ensemble and this kind of thing. But it's yeah. like, uh, and actually, there are more than one point in this film that I kind of feel, because it was written by Gunn as well, yeah. um, that I feel that he's having a dig at Marvel. Like he's still pissed off, understandably so. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how much of these characters are from uh, the actual comic books. And I know Marvel and DC for years are sort of effectively copying each other anyway. But the the way things are done in this film, it feels like they're sort of, at the very least, pastiches of Marvel characters. Like the Rat Woman, this feels like Ant-Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Sebastian the Rat's considerably cuter than even a, um, <laughs> Ant playing rock band. Yeah. So. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's just a lot of fun. I, I admit I was worried when Jai Courtney turned up. I thought, oh no, it's Jai Courtney. But then Jai Courtney dies right away. So yay, Jai Courtney's death. So, you know. uh, and yeah, the the interesting way that the sort of, I guess, chapter headings are like a kind of yeah. five minutes before type things are mixed into the the scenes are... are um, they're sort of fourth wall breaking, but kind of fun. And again, it's not taking itself seriously. It works here. Yeah. Uh, and the single greatest studio title in history in this film. <laughs> That's one of the funniest and best things I've ever seen. I cackled like a demon. Uh, I won't spoil the face if you've not seen it, um, but just, just look out for Warner Brothers Pictures Presents and, and how that's displayed on screen. It is excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah, beyond that, I don't have a, a great deal to say. It was just... I mean, it's not brilliant. I guess that that final act drags a bit, as all of these films tend to do. They need to have some sort of big set piece at the end. Yeah. Because it's against a massive bright blue and red walking starfish instead of some leaden villain, though. You know, it's better. Yeah. So it's it's more tolerable than it might otherwise have been. It's just... These films all seem to need to end with that. It's like, yeah, the film had finished 20 minutes before. It was fine, you could have left it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they good. Some interesting musical choices. And I, di- I didn't expect a big budget superhero movie to have the Fratellis, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but their whistle for the choir was expertly deployed. And the lyrics matched the scene with um, Harley Quinn really rather well. Uh, and Louis Prima's original verse of Just a Gigolo. That's great. I actually do prefer the David Lee Roth version. I need more <laughs> um, scatting, but it's, uh, it's still, that, that was fun. So kind of incongruous musical choices that provide a bit of uh, levity as well as just being good songs. So yeah, it's all good. Good done with the more Nathan Fillion, because I like Nathan Fillion a lot. Uh, I would have liked to have to see, seen him be Captain Hammer. Yes. Turned bad. <laughs> Or alternatively, keep that character's sort of original name, which I believe was called Arms Fall Off Boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah, beyond that, great. And a couple of little nice wee smaller jokes, then I suspect that I've missed some too. But like the the torture again, a message on his mobile phone that says, What are you doing? And they're responding with a little um, Caesar emoticon suggesting he was electrocuting a woman in a red dress. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so it's not brilliant. It's a bit long, but it's night and day better than twenty sixteen Suicide Squad. It's just a great deal of fun. Yeah, it is. It is that um, exactly that? It's a good good amount of fun. I would 
happily watch this again at some point in the future. Not not immediately, but it's not the kind of thing that would, that would fill me with dread about going back to the way a lot <laughs> yes, of DC yeah. films would. Even though it's not brilliant, it, it might be one of my favourite, certainly of the, the post-Nolan DC stuff, um, after maybe Shazam, which is the only other one that kind of treated it with itself with a bit of levity as well. You know, Maybe they're onto something with this whole... Maybe not everything needs to be so grimdark all the time. Zack Snyder, yeah. step away from the controls. Just let let other people have a go at it that might have slightly different and more fun ideas about it, you know? Give us a break. Yeah. Um, Shazam, you like Shazam's more kind of cartoonish. Mm-hmm. And it, it just fitted the way that was played and the actors they had really well. Uh, this is not cartoonish, but it is daft. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's irreverent. And it works really quite well. So yeah, it's it's good. Um, also, Sly Stallone is definitely one of those people who is, <laughs> has been, for a long time now, like, been well up in my estimation for being able to take the piss out of himself. Yes. <laughs> Probably ever since uh, Spy Kids 3D. Yes. <laughs> if you remember his role, or his role his was in yeah. Scott. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And that, that was another thing that felt like a... Again, I don't know the character, but that felt like a Marvel reference, like it was just taking the piss out of Groot. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I suspect that uh, Sly Stallone's got an awful lot more self-awareness than Vin Diesel. <laughs> it would be a very uh, different yeah. film if it was a shark. It was very concerned with his family. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that character could have been overdone. I think they caught the, the amount that's there and the silly thing he's saying. Just about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, then go too hard on that so yeah it's it's fun yes and already this episode is uh, off a much better start than last month's intermission episode <laughs> good, good. Uh, let's see if that hot streak continues with lost in the moonlight okay uh yeah now this is a much older film than we normally put into our intermission episodes in the shape of 2016 korean animation lost in the moonlight which I first saw the trailer for six years ago and had been wanting to watch since, but thanks to a lack of an English subtitled version, I've had to wait until 2021 to see. This has been rectified in the last few months, it would seem, with one of my periodic checks having turned it up on Amazon. What I'd attracted me most was the style, reminiscent of Studio Ghibli. Now, it's possible that I compare Asian animation to Studio Ghibli too often, Although it's hard and perhaps inappropriate not to. They're the gold standard. Indeed, when it comes to traditional two-dimensional animation at all, they're the gold standard everywhere. Uh, And if you're interested, please listen to a review of Earwig and the Witch in our February 2021 episode if you'd like to learn about how they're very much not the gold standard for 3D animation. (laughs) But in this case, the comparison was particularly appropriate as Studio Hulhori's film bears more than a little resemblance to Spirited Away. Adolescent girl, Hyo Jun Lee, is about to perform in her school's musical, in which she plays a tree. Upset about her small part, fed up with being ignored by her classmates and the director, embarrassed about her parents coming to watch her and, well, being 13, (laughs) Hyo Jun Lee decides to run away from the performance. At the same time, a rat who is part of the ancient and recently restored clock, the unveiling ceremony of which Hyun Julie's musical is a part. So I'm, I'm really struggling to say that it's a Korean name. I don't know how to do it. So I'm, I second guess myself every moment. Is similarly fed up of his seemingly minor role and leaves the clock. Of course, in the human world, the rat is only a figure in a clock, but in the spirit world, he is actually a rat god 
who unwittingly carries a name tag that, if allowed to fall into the wrong hands, will cause time to stop and darkness to forever cover both the human and spirit worlds. It falls into the wrong hands. <laughs> the fleeing from embarrassment, Hyun Julie picks up the name tag and, due to its magic, ends up in the spirit world, full of strange demon creatures, including one masked figure with an extending neck, vengeful trees like evil ents, and the gods. Here she also encounters Madame Blossom, possessor of those wrong hands, who is not suspected at all of being evil because, as the disguised rat god who has become the girl's companion states, no pretty people are bad. (laughs) Sadly, Lost in the Moonlight turned out to be very much not worth waiting for. While it's reasonably well animated, even if the backgrounds have the look of a Ghibli first pass rather than the achingly beautiful and beautiful and painstakingly drawn art of that studio's finished work, and some of the character designs are either interesting or creepy, where it really suffers is story and character. Setting aside the very on-the-nose but almost de rigueur messaging about pollution and the environment, as the plot progresses and the world approaches destruction, Hyun Joo Lee is given no agency whatsoever, being buffeted around events like a twig in a hurricane, and always rescued by external forces never her own wit or action. It is, frankly, extremely boring and unsatisfying. It also fails in its messaging. When the Spirit Clock's creator addresses the issue of the rat god's dissatisfaction which led to his leaving the clock, our heroine informs him, it's because no one told him how important his role is. If someone did, even if it is a routine job, he would have done it gladly. So much, so... You're an important part of things, even if you're unhappy with the size of your role, moral for children. But really, no, you're just dressed as a tree in the background. Your part is actually insignificant. <laughs> this film is not saying what you think it is, especially since Hyun Ju Lee is a spectator for more or less the entirety of her adventure. In the end, what I really want to do is warn off anyone else who, like me, might stumble across a trailer for this at some point and think... Okay, I'll bite. Let's see how this lot to do a spirited away knockoff. Don't. It's too dull. Instead, I'd recommend watching a little film called Spirited Away, which does a lot of the same stuff, but also much better. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, I, I've not seen this, but I know you're looking forward to this quite a bit, and uh, yeah, that's a crushing disappointment, I guess. Oh, well. Yeah, I was thinking... I'd sort of set up for being something like a... A Studio Ponock film. Yeah, yeah. Like Mary and the Witch's Flower, so... Solid B-plus you know, tier kind of deal, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like Ghibli light, you know, animation almost as good, maybe not as much depth in the story or something. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't expect was simply to be bored, and it's it's only 81 minutes long and I was struggling. Um, <laughs> again, it's, it's hard to call it bad. I, I don't think that's quite the fair word, and it's clearly had effort put into it. I just think they've concerned themselves more with the the creation of the world and how it looks with, without putting any actual substance or story in it. Yeah, yeah. And when you've got, especially Ghibli in particular, their, their heroines are just amazing. They're resourceful, intelligent, thoughtful people. And this, the character in this, like, she has nothing to do. She's just a, a spectator. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so this is definitely a case of disappointment more than anything else. And it's, I had been watching, waiting five or six years to watch this, and I got oh, hell, that's a bummer. Yes. Oh well. Uh, 
So, so that, there is one more positive thing I can find, though, just because the name amused me. The um, the rights arm of the distribution and production company that made this, NEW, is called Contents Panda. <laughs> which was, was a name which particularly tickled me. So, <laughs> if I ever return to Twitter, that, that may become my, um, <laughs> my screen name on Twitter. Like, Contents Panda. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> Right, if you've not seen that, it's got a nice little point in staying with it. Yes. Uh, let's move on to an explodey beverage. Yes, gunpowder milkshake. And, right, hear me out. What if, right, John Wick, but woman? That's it. That's the review. <laughs> What's that, Grace? Contractually obligated minimum review length? Who signed up for that? I did? Well, damn me. Damn me to hell. Oh, all right. Now, action film from Netflix doesn't yet have the same run for the hills quality warning as science fiction film from Netflix, although it's getting down there. So we trepidatiously approach Gunpowder Milkshake, in which we find uh, Lena Headey's Scarlet in Elite Assassin for The Firm, having to go into hiding for mysterious reasons, leaving her daughter in the care of Paul Giamatti's Nathan, her handler in that their firm. Said daughter grows up to be Karen Gillian's Sam and, well, like mother, like daughter. However, Spanners are interfaced with works when her last assignment goes south, with the son of a local crime outfit run by Ralph Innocent's Jim McAllister getting a case of ballistic lead poisoning. This will soon catch up with Sam, but not before she's told to track down and kill someone who stole money from the firm. In the process of doing so, she'll find out that the crime was actually done in order to pay uh, for his young daughter, Chloe Coleman's Emily is a ransom to a bunch of kidnappers. At which point Sam decides to go off mission, uh, rescuing Emily while the McAllister gang shake the firm to the extent that they are happy to give up Sam in exchange for peace. Hence, a great amount of firepower is soon levelled at Sam, but she will receive some unexpected help from her returning mother and her friends Carla Guino, uh, Michelle Yeo and Angela Bassett's group of librarian assassins, I guess? Now, to be fair, I didn't dislike my time with Gunpowder Milkshake, which was an amiable enough watch as far as this sort of thing goes. I might even have felt a bit more receptive to it in a theoretical world where nobody wasn't released a few months back, or the John Wick films existed, or the John Wick Bloodshed films, but as it stands, this just kind of falls to the bottom of that pack. Maybe it's also because its primary difference, gender aside, is the odd neon 50s aesthetic it's running with, which is stylizing its violence into the Suicide Squad's territory, which did that better this very episode. Hedy and Gillen do quite well bouncing off each other and the supporting cast is adequately served. Side note, it's nice to see Giamatti again, sadly missed over the past, what, three years? And overall, I don't have a great many complaints about the actors, but Navot Pachapudo's script and directions is just a bit too try-hardy for its own good. Mm-hmm. It results in a film that seems desperate to self-identify as a cult classic rather than get there organically and is slightly repellent for that, but only slightly. It's not enough to completely ruin it. If you are in the mood for a slice of stylized action and you've already seen the other similarly themed fix, uh, flicks aforementioned, then this won't be an unpleasant watch, but that's a pretty caveated recommendation at best. For more general audiences, hmm. Pass. Yeah, it's um, try hard is a, a good term, Scott. Um, it's very kind of self conscious mm-hmm. um, in what it's trying to do and doesn't do it. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm slightly more negative on you than you on this, but not by much. I, I don't imagine. Uh, I mm. 
I find it reasonably enjoyable. And there are a couple of standout moments. There are some quite inventive action scenes, uh, particularly a scene in a car park with uh, a car, uh, with a car driving, no, a child driving the car. Yeah. Um, and then just before that, a scene with of combat with disabled hands or paralysed arms. It's, yeah. The weird thing about those inventive action scenes, though, is that the music that accompanies them doesn't match up particularly well. Mm. I don't think the music is well chosen. Uh, it's not in every scene, but in quite a lot of them. It's just, it's, just, it's music that I, I assume the director liked the sound of rather than it particularly serving the scene well. Right, yeah. Whereas something like, say, in a Edgar Wright film or something, it would be much more choreographed. And I'm not saying to the, the degree that his films are with music. Sure. But the, 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 the beats of the music would match the beats of the action better. And the, the two don't really seem to have a lot to do each, with each other in this film, which is a bit of a problem. Combine that with what I found was to be a rather muted sound mix. So there's no kind of punched it. Right. And I know that's not my setup because I'm almost speakers calibrated and the watch other films on, on the same day and it was all fine too so yeah. it's, you know, there's something about the mix is kind of just I don't have too much um, range compression put on it or something right. but it's, yeah. it's, it's lacking a punch which is a a technical issue but with perhaps with Netflix rather than with uh, the film itself but it, it kind of takes away some of the I don't want to use the word punch again but it takes away some of the impact from the film I think with the, the sound mix not being brilliant but yeah I mean it's, it's okay I kind of like the the quite heavily stylized look of it yeah uh it almost felt like a, like a technicolor sin city yeah <laughs> yeah although that's weirdly undercut at one point by stopping at the weirdest point in the film to do it stopping for a funeral mm. uh, which didn't seem to demerit being done at the time but also that's not possible they're trying to say something there show something but in, in the one bit of the film that's notably in like a real world setting, yeah, um, not a city at night or something heavily stylized or something. It just it was really quite jarring. But the whole I mean, now I'm talking about it, and I've got a lot more negative. I feel really negative, and I didn't feel that when I was watching. I don't particularly feel now. It passed the time well enough. It's just that I, it's not as good as it thinks it is, or as progressive as it thinks it is. But I. I have this feeling that it thinks it's some sort of great step forward, some great equaliser, because it's all women in the major roles, and it's all the men being the goons that are dying. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's just a kind of crappy, schlocky, generic action film that happens to have women instead of men. Yeah, Luke, um, Cynthia Rock, Rothrock, and, well, for that matter, um, Michelle Yeoh's career, <laughs> would like to have words with you. Uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's perhaps Michelle Yeoh's uh, or served in that regard. Although she mm. just get to do a couple of nifty kills. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and so kind of going along with that too. There's like you know, really exceedingly on the nose moments too. Like Big Brother and the Holding Company's version of Peace of My Heart. Mm-hmm. You hear Janice Joplin very loudly scream, "I'm going to show you, baby, that a woman can be tough while the women are fighting." <laughs> yeah. you know, subtle, they call that, Scott. Subtle. Yes. <laughs> But none of that paper's over, the kind of, the, the sort of just generic schlocky nature of it, you know, and the fact, like, the closest the film has to a villain is some greasy-haired pillock with not a notable character trait at all. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, yeah, the, of course the whole film's a bit meh. 
like I feel, do feel negative now because I didn't particularly enjoy Karen Gillan, or not that I didn't like her either. Um, I was thinking about this, and I've not seen her in a lot, and I can't remember how she was in Jumanji, hmm. um, or the remake of Jumanji. Welcome to the Jungle, was that the first one? Yes, that the yes that's the first one, yeah. Uh, well, first, well, first reboot, no yes. <laughs> yes. So I can't remember whether I liked it. I'm beginning to like that film quite a lot. I suspect I did. But in this, she felt constrained or her range was constrained. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a lot of emotion, uh, kind of emotion in, but I did wonder, and it's what I wish I could remember Jumanji a bit more clearly, whether that's due to the strictures of putting on that accent. I don't um, know if it's as much that. I mean, the character herself is a little bit stunted. I mean, I, mm. that, it, it's kind of, it's maybe a bit of column A and a bit of column B. She's, I've seen her before being a lot more charismatic and likeable, but obviously this is not a role where she's just trying to be charismatic or likeable, or in fact, quite the opposite. So I, I, I don't necessarily hold it against her uh, in terms of her performance. Uh, I hold it against it in terms of the script. Um, mm, yeah. I think it's more a script problem than a, than a Karen Gillan problem. It may be too, because like one of the other touchstones I have for this, and it's a very similar performance in terms of range and vocality to, to the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Sure, yeah, yeah. Although that, I mean, I'm one of those, the rare people who think the second Guardians film is considerably better than the first. Most other people feel the same other way around for some reason. But in that film, the women in particular were underserved because there was the green women and the blue women. Yeah. And she was a blue woman, and that's basically all she had. Whereas... <laughs> In the second Guardians of the Galaxy film and in the Avengers stuff as well, the Infinity War and Endgame, she's a lot better. Yeah. So it, it may be the scripts, it may be the materials kind of constrain her. The, the reason thing is because there are other actors where I've been quite certain that their range has been constricted by having to focus on doing an accent that's quite different from their own one yeah. instead of um, just been acting... I mean, I know she's supposed to be raised in America, though, also. It's meant to be America, but they haven't bothered to disguise any of the German license plates or the German buildings or anything. So, <laughs> weird. Because uh, a lot of it was shot in Berlin, I think. Or maybe Munich, I forget which. I think Berlin. Um, so, yeah, they haven't bothered to disguise that. So, why have her raised in America? Her mother's played by an English woman using her natural accent. Why can't she be Scottish? Yeah. She used a real accent. I yeah. would have see if that may have felt quite different. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, so I have liked another things like Jumanji and uh, when she's in a touch of cloth, and I don't remember whether she used her real accent now, but I think so. Yeah, um, she's fun in that. So yes, yeah, it's, it's maybe the material more than that, but yeah, uh, the script is a problem actually because there's at one point to it again. It's more back to this idea that it, I think it thinks it's making a big strike for feminism or something, and it, it it's not. When there's that guy who's, I suppose he's top villain, but he's barely in the films, he doesn't count. And he's sitting mm. in the, the dining room, I think was, I've always considered myself a feminist, and then tells this boring little tale that in fact has sawed all to do with feminism or non feminism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another slight niggles, I feel so negative about this, but it's like, they won't use the word mother fudger, and there's a whole kind of, sort of subplot of not swearing in front of the child, but. Wanton violence is fine, including a decapitated head resting on the blades of a forklift. Yes. <laughs> and if this was a cleverer film, I think they were trying to say something, but it's not a clever film, so I don't think it is. I think it's just an <laughs> ill-judged attempt at humour. That said, it's 
It's not bad. I mean, we're definitely not down the ranks of uh, Netflix sci-fi yet, as you say, Scott. <laughs> so, you know, let's all be thankful for that. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a just about enough to make it a kind of solid mid-range B-movie kind of fare uh, in, in yeah. the old way of thinking about things. Um, it's it's probably ideal Netflix fodder. This seems to be the, their kind of sweet spot of stuff that's um, close enough to being an A-list movie, but not quite, <laughs> you know, somewhat cheaper for it. So it, yeah. I, I guess it'll work for them, you know, financially. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm glad this kind of level of thing is being made. If, if that's what Netflix can bring to the table, that's fine. Eventually we'll get something that I that I more appreciate. And I'm sure there's some people that will really gel with the aesthetic that it's going for and get a lot more out of it than I did. Um, and even so, I still liked it well enough. I don't, I, I'm not recommending people run the opposite way from it. It's okay, no, yeah. um, uh, which I think we're kind of on more or less the same page with. It's, it's, it's fine, but yeah, it is not something that um, we'd be doing. It's certainly not something that's going to be troubling either Oscars or Best Film of the Year lists or anything like that. It's it is a film that I've watched and I, and I don't regret watching it in a way that I have of so many films lately. So I suppose that's a positive. <laughs> yes, um, I say I did enjoy it. It was reasonably entertaining, um, and it's not one of those films that you know immediately fell apart afterwards. Like yeah. all the issues I had while watching it, I still enjoyed it. If there's one other thing, it's that, and there has already been a sequel greenlit, I believe, it did feel like it was aiming to be a franchise rather than just a solid film Yeah. to begin with. Like, it felt like it wanted to, you know, be picked up for several films. Like, that's quite cynical. Yes. <laughs> you know, like that. Um, and I kind of, a bit of a shame, it's a bit of a waste of the great talents of Angela Bassett, but, you know. Yes. Almost all films, Angela Bassett's been in have wasted her talents because she's great, and um, <laughs> you could always have more Angela Bassett with better lines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it particularly suffers for me this year because it was released in the same year as Nobody, which is one of the best action films there's been in years and yeah, years. Yeah. So you know, it can't compete. But you know, there's space for more than one action film. Absolutely. So we'll move on then to our next film, which is Pig. True. What's that about? Yes, I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone stole it, a gruff-voiced Nicolas Cage tells us in the trailer for Pig. His pig was taken. <laughs> Perhaps then um, Nicolas Cage's Robin will turn out to be the sort of man who doesn't have money, but he does have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> skills that he has acquired over a long career? Well, actually, yes, but absolutely not the sort of skills that the rather misleading trailer, which fortunately I didn't see until after watching the film, might lead you to expect. This week's Nicolas Cage vehicle is one of those that pleasantly reminds us all that, given the appropriate material and direction, Mr. Cage is really a very fine actor indeed. It can be easy to forget that. Unlike, say, Al Pacino, who around here we tend to measure on a decimal Scarface scale, trademark, Nicolas Cage's performances tend to reflect one of two settings. On, or all of the Nick Cage, or off. Normal person. <laughs> Here we very much get the off setting. Indeed, it's perhaps the most low-key performance I can remember seeing him give, spending most of the first start of the film barely even talking, and I'm very much here for it. As much fun as his more trademark maniacal turns than the likes of Mom and Dad or Mandy are, this is the cage I've always preferred. Nicholas Cage the actor, not the human meme, seemingly intent on actually becoming the parody version of him created by Andy Samberg on Saturday Night Live. 
This acting happens in and around Portland in the northwest of the US, where Katie's Rob lives quietly and simply in the woods with his pet pig, selling the truffles that she finds to Alex Wolf's Amir, a Portland restaurant supplier and promoter, to provide him with a living. Violence enters Rob's quiet world, though, when he's attacked in the middle of the night and his pig stolen. A still bloodied Rob makes his way into the city to find the animal, enlisting Amir's help, as he journeys into the world of high-pressure oat cuisine with a seedy underbelly. This is a world that Rob was once part of, but left and returning, he only partially recognises, though part of that may be due to the fact that Rob does not entirely recognise himself anymore. To mention more would be to risk spoiling this subdued and thoughtful piece and explorations of the effects of grief. I will just add some praise instead, in particular for Alex Wolfe as Katie's unwilling associate and Patrick Scola's beautiful cinematography and its abundant use of natural light, or at least the effect thereof. Pig isn't flawless, the underground restaurant fight club seeming particularly odd, but it really is rather a wonderful little film, and an impressive debut from writer-director Michael Sarnowski. A low-key, non-sentimental character piece running to only 92 minutes it's quite comfortably one of the best films I've seen all year. Very highly recommended. Yes, um, I don't know if this was a pleasant surprise because I've heard good things about it. It's just, I suppose it's surprising to be uh, for that uh, good things to be backed up by it actually being a good film at the end of the day. Uh, I say it's a, a timely reminder that Nick Cage can act if he wants to, but he chooses not to frequently. Um, <laughs> uh, but here instead, it's a, it's a very pleasantly low-key performance. It's uh, because it has been a long time since I've seen him being this effective doing so little. Yeah. Maybe even leaving Las Vegas or 9mm kind of time frame or 9mm, 8mm? Probably 8mm. 8mm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so that kind of time frame. Yeah. Um, a, a timely reminder uh, that he's uh, really one of uh, cinema's national treasures. Um, I mean, look, this is the same setup in the first 10, 15 minutes as Mandy had, but it's a very different film that comes <laughs> after it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, like it a lot. Um, let's say I'm pro- probably glad I didn't have to write up any notes for this because, yeah, I, I don't think the script, in terms of its narrative, strictly speaking, would hold up to a lot of scrutiny. Like you say, the, the underground fight. Well, hobo punching gang thing where the underworld boss also knows about the inner and outs of truffle pig stealing <laughs> world or something. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of sort of jumps of logic that that if I had to anal- analyse a bit more might actually kind of undermine the film as itself. But thankfully, when you're watching it, that kind of doesn't really enter into it. Um, it it's very good at kind of pulling you into this world. And it's a, a real testament to Nick Cage's performance as a, how much he can draw you into this character despite saying practically nothing for the entire film. And then just quietly destroying that chef in the restaurant yeah, um, f- with a, a few devastating words. devastating scene. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's a really powerful bit of character work. And uh, th- th- that, as you say, that, that really is what, what I take away from this film. It's, it's a lovely little character piece. Tight, efficient, 90-minute use and, you know, just very tactically deploys Nicolas Cage's talents in a way that is uh, surprising if you've only seen the as you say the more memeable side of his uh, his career um, but yeah it's, it's a tremendous piece of work and uh, yeah I heartily enjoyed it, a lot, lot of things to like in here and very little to dislike, yeah I would certainly recommend this, it's uh, by its nature a slightly strange um, setup but I think one that would 
be heartily recommended to anyone who's as I say into film enough to what to listen to a film podcast. So yes, absolutely anyone that's listening to the sound of my voice should seek out Pig with the uh, utmost urgency. It is really good indeed. Yeah, it's it's just nice to be reminded that he can act. That was that mm. was my biggest takeaway from it. <laughs> I hadn't really forgotten, but it's it had been so long since I'd seen it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, Mandy, as I've said many times, is both the worst of things and best of things. Yes. Um, and that, <laughs> his performance is good enough, but it's still more on the... Nuts. Sorry. Sort of, yes. yes, and it's yes. like every single thing is shouted sort of way and everything's on fire type yes. of um, <laughs> performance that Sandy Samper could lampoon him about on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's... The, the actual... Like the leaps of the plot, they don't make a great deal of sense, but they, they more or less exist to get them from one place to the other. And maybe there wasn't a good way to write, or the, the writer didn't really have the, yes. the experience to do that well. Um, uh, but ultimately, it didn't matter because yes, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a way to get to the next very emotional and affecting scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- yeah, that um, scene with the, the chef, and it's like it's perhaps one of the best ever scenes I've seen that embody. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that case just cuts that guy down without malice. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's it's really nice. And I said, you know, the first act, he barely talks at all. But it's not like one of those kind of mumblecore performances that you, yeah. you see every now and then. It's just, it's just quiet and reserved, like a man with a lot going on under the skin. Yeah, the amount of detail you can discern about how he got to where he is just from the act of playing the start of a tape and then not playing the rest of it in a slumming way, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Tremendous, yeah. Uh, both in terms of the acting performance and indeed the writing. Uh, yeah, uh, really and well done stuff. Tubes, yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's, I almost did write when my notes that it was remarkably assured for the for a first time director, but then I remembered we talked about Reservoir Dogs that long ago. It's like actually doing a first time film really well isn't necessarily all that impressive. It's um, whether you can follow up with a second one. So I hope you can. True, uh, but still, for you know, first time and working with someone as <laughs> Nick Cage, it's Nick yes. Cage. <laughs> uh, as investment, I don't imagine that he's ever been one of those people like Jim Carrey, where you know to get any sort of decent performance, you have to have a like Iron Will. I suspect to be able to rein him in. Mm-hmm. So the only time he's been tolerable is when he's not been Jim Carrey. Yeah, um, I don't think that's the case with Nick Cage, but still, for someone who's got no experience at all, to take this walking meme <laughs> and get this sort of performance out of him again, it's wonderful, and it's just nice to see that Cage back. So I'm looking forward to more of that. Indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah indeed. I, until then, this is just a it's a wonderful film. Um, so watch it now before next week's Nick Cage vehicle takes out of your mind. <laughs> before Bangkok Dangerous Four, <laughs> the reboot uh, appears. Yeah. Right, we're going to finish on something not quite so low key. A film which sees Disney definitely not try to recapture some of that Pirates of the Caribbean success. No, Siri Bob. Yes, indeed. This is Jungle Cruise, which, as you mentioned, is a film based on a theme park ride. Well, we've been here before, of course, with Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, which was given the side eye before release, but turned out to be an enjoyable romp. Now, admittedly, a slew of increasingly poor sequels may have dimmed that memory, but at any rate, it does earn Jungle Cruise a fair hearing, at least. Uh, So, 
Emily Blunt's no-nonsense Dr. Lily Houghton is on the search for a legendary, surely mythical artefact called the Tears of the Moon, a veritable tree of life, much to the amusement of the stuffy old Royal Society. Well, they're mostly being amused at this point by her foppish dandy brother sidekick, Jack Whitehall's McGregor Houghton, um, as they're not going to listen to a woman speak, perish the thought. Also on the trail is Jesse Plemons, entirely accurately accented Prince Joachim, <laughs> seeking the healing powers of the tree for Jeremy's war effort, leading to some tussles over an arrowhead artefact that Lily believes to be the key to finding the tree. So then, off to Brazil, where they hire sketchy steamboat captain Rock the Dwayne Johnson's Frank Wolf to journey down the Amazon in his sketchy steamboat with the Germans in hot submarine pursuit, whereupon a variety of perils, both natural and supernatural, must be navigated until they reach the end of the ride. Sorry, film. Uh, all the while exchanging quips and barbs and occasionally humiliating Jack Whitehall, but not often enough for my liking. A touch dismissive, but a blow-by-blow recap of this film is not going to do anyone a lot of good, uh, save perhaps to mention also the cursed ghost conquistadors released from their captivity by the Germans to help find the Tears of the Moon, which will also tie into Frank's mysterious past. Ooh, mysterious. Um, it is, of course nonsense, but <laughs> it's such likeable nonsense that not even Jack Whitehall can ruin it. Um, Johnson carries a lot of it, this being one of the better vehicles for his charisma and awful, awful puns, and he bounces well off Blunt, Whitehall, and even Paul Giamatti. Jesus, him again. Give someone else a chance, Paul. Stop taking all the roles. Uh, now, I have already mostly forgotten Jungle Cruise, come to think of it in much the same way I've swiftly forgot pretty much anything about that their Jumanji reboot, um, other than a vague memory of it being an enjoyable couple of hours of popcorn fueled blockbuster entertainment. It's for sure not life-changing cinema, but it's a broadly appealing family action-adventure romp that's worth checking out, um, certainly if you have your Disney Pluses and... Uh, probably worth a trip to the cinema if that is fitting with your risk profiles yeah i like this well enough as i say definitely not life-changing but it's an enjoyable way to spend a couple of hours yeah yeah you know what this was fine i am never going to watch it again i am also never going to think about it again exactly yeah yeah but it was fine and a lot of that is to do with uh, the rock yeah dwayne johnson who's you know that there are Two wrestlers have ever been any good on screen. One of them only managed in one film, and that's only because, largely because of one very famous line in a 10 minute alley fight with Keith yes. David. Um, and the other one is Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's he's a lot of fun to watch. I love his delivery of those terrible puns. You know, yeah. he's, he gets the delivery of those just right, actually. Again, he's not the world's greatest actor by any means, but he, um, he plays these strengths quite well. I think he's quite aware of what they are. Yeah. And Emily Blunt, I like a lot. I don't think she's hugely well served here, but there's enough sort of decent interplay between her and uh, Dwayne Johnson that kind of papers over all the other stuff quite well because the other stuff is nonsense. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of ruins it, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's, as I said, it's really just trying to recapture that Pirates of the Caribbean success and it's nowhere near successful. Uh, even goes as far as lifting a good 50% of its plot, at least from one or more of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Yeah, yeah. It's very um, familiar. So I don't know how true it is to the right, I guess, but I don't know if that's an appropriate discussion to have in terms of a film podcast. Yeah. I've been on the Paris the Caribbean ride, but I've never been on the Jungle Cruise ride because it doesn't, it's not in the Paris one, but um, it's Paris the Caribbean one had a dog and the film had a dog, so that's about as close as it got, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's got like magical cursed skeletons and stuff and all that other thing. I think, yeah, yeah. 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 
it, it's very similar. I think it's good, but the other stuff's okay. And, and I had, I'll admit, Scott, I had my worries about this film because within the first three minutes, I'd seen both Jack Whitehall and Andy Nyman. Yes. And I thought, oh dear God, <laughs> help. Um, but yeah, actually, Jack Whitehall was not nearly as irritated as I expected. Yes. So that's good, I guess. I mean, I mean of course um, that's skewed because you expect uh, Whitehall to be the single most irritating person in the world because he normally is. But yes, he's he's tempered somewhat by, by the rest of this plot. So yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of likeable in this. Actually, I mean, I don't appreciate the Scottish relatives jibe, but he didn't write that, I assume, so yes. I can't really blame him for that. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the only the, the big problem I had with him and his character was that at some point he starts talking about um, how his sister really helped him because um, he kept getting marriage proposals and his desires lay elsewhere. You yes. used the damn word gay, Disney. Yeah. Use it, you... Mm. Yeah, this being the second time they've tried this outing maybe on the third one they'll actually get to say the word gay um, yes. <laughs> they need to work themselves up to it very slowly need to uh, ease themselves into it so to speak it's uh, yeah I, I don't know what was going on with Jesse Plemons accent from the start um, <laughs> like I mean in other films you might criticise it for being inaccurate but I mean given the kind of film it's in it's sort of works because it's like comical Nazi yeah. hello hello kind of villain type role. That's fine. Okay, <laughs> live for that. Yeah, um, it almost feels like it's sort of there too, just to have that really awkward thing later on where he's saying the jungle and he's saying the jungle, but maybe it's more like the jungle. Mm. Um, but McGregor's pretending to not understand him. Like that fell really flat. Yeah, kind of forced, but. Um, yeah, we do mention that season. That came up um, while I was watching the two. Was like, that part of it felt like it was trying to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the greatest action films ever made. You know, you know, know your place, Jungle Cruise. You can't do this. <laughs> and, um, also, the wrong war for that to work. But um, yeah, I kind of sort of put that to the side. I was enjoying The Rock more and Emily Blunt. I mean, it does. The sort of irritations that went through it, the kind of running stuff, somewhat, so much worked sort of and some it didn't. Um, there's the fact that The Rock keeps referring to Emily Blunt's character as Pants, hmm. which is possibly the worst nickname that's ever been in the history of film. Yes. It's extremely annoying after the first use, <laughs> let alone the 20th. And then there's like other bits, like there's a translation joke about when they're in the native village. Uh, which I guess they are, but they all speak English anyway. But if you sort of think about it at all, that joke only works for the audience. It doesn't actually make sense in this world of the film. Mm. So, and I think about these th- sort of things. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I'll admit I was worried um, because I was getting quite irritated quite early on the film uh, when Emily Blunt's character kept saying, oh my gosh, even you know, like when a German U-boat appears or hanging to her death o- or potential death over the street. And I hate the phrase, oh my gosh, with a fiery burning passion because it is the most insipid, terrible phrase in the English language. Gosh should be outlawed. Uh, some sort of crime against humanity. The UN should get on that. You know, gosh, stuff. can't believe you're saying that. I'm going to slap you as hard <laughs> as I possibly can. Not even joking, I hate that word so much because it, it, it has no impact, it has no meaning. Um, and you, you must have hated films. Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you must have hated um, that film. 
And the you, you should not have you that because I'm going to use that. I'm going to deploy that <laughs> tactic constantly from now on. Gosh, I really am. Your balls are going to be so sore from the kicking. I'm going to get from Scott. No, it's because it's just such an insipid word, and it really bothers me because it's so often employed in films where, like, it, if that was a real person, they would never say that. And I'm always a race too because I, I have very often have on films the Spanish subtitles, and I've done it for a few years now to just like, you know, to brush up my Spanish and learn some words and, and now I watch them and, and correct them in my head because I realise where they're mistranslated from English. But um, it's always translated properly in um, Spanish to Dios mío. Whenever someone even says, oh my God, yeah. it's always not it's, uh, <laughs> Dios mío, my God in um, Spanish. But no, so this was actually a running joke where she was like getting pushed closer and closer because it suddenly became, oh my goodness. And like, mm-hmm. then finally, when they got to the rapids, she went, oh my God. Um <laughs> That was a weird running joke to have. Yes. <laughs> uh, like, a massive U-boat appears, and that still gets an oh my gosh. It was rapids it took you to say oh my god. How? Yeah. So, um, but it's like, again, if it wasn't a Disney film, I think they were having a go at that annoying puritanical streak in American society, like, you know, where violence is fine, but swearing's a no-no. Mm. Um, but I think it was just sort of a suggestion that our kind of composure was breaking more than anything here. But yeah, it's 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 forgettable, it's fluff, but it was enjoyable, forgettable fluff. I, I didn't really resent my time with it. It's, again, how unusual for us to be saying this, Scott. It's over long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it didn't outstay its welcome as much as um, a lot of films have. It's like two hours, seven minutes. So it's a good 20 minutes too long at least. Uh, and a huge chunk of the the cursed skeleton warrior thing could be cut quite happily. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple of, um, I'm just going to finish a couple of strange musical notes. There's a, a new rendition done by Metallica of Nothing Else Matters that opens the film and comes up later. That was weird in this kiddie film, um, kiddie adventure films about a theme park, right? Yeah, there's a few weird things you, you, you find when you're reading up on these films when trying to do your review. One of them being that this has been in gestation for nearly 20 years. Like really, like I That's think two, not a good sign. Like I think it was something like two thousand and four was the first thing they were kind of booted about this kind of thing. There was like early versions that was going to have Tom Hanks and uh, Tim Allen on it or something like that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like that's weird. And, and certainly, I don't think that has anything to do with this film, which does not seem like it's had twenty years worth of thought put into it. Uh, another one being that yeah, that, that, that Metallica thing happened. There was some. Disney exec saying, you know, we've, we've been looking for a chance to uh, to really work with Metallica on something that really uh, combines our brand values. Like, what brand values do Metallica and Disney have in common? Nothing. What are you talking they'll, about? They'll, this is, like this is nonsense. This, They're successful and they like money, so I guess that's it. But, um, <laughs> anyway, its presence didn't bother me, um, which is good because it's a song I actually particularly like. Um, and it's got for a couple of reasons actually put out a sentimental value to me that right. song um, but it's like it's like oh this is a, a new rendition of Nothing Else Matters well it's there I guess <laughs> not sure why I opened the film after the <laughs> Disney castle you know, yeah. but okay uh, <laughs> the other musical note is that I have spent um, a good half hour today on a loop on YouTube listening to a German song called Das Paddleboat which is what Jesse Plemons and his crew <laughs> sing at some point in the film <laughs> what is that I can go and I start listening like this is rubbish yet annoyingly catchy and <laughs> very very German um, 
It's like, it feels like it should have an Oompa band on it. Um, <laughs> although I guess that's more of a Bavarian thing, and I think this is Hamburg style. Uh, but yes, uh, Das Paddleboats, look it up, folks. You'll um, thank, stroke, hate me later. <laughs> Don't stroke me later. That would be just thank or hate me. Uh, yeah, it's it's not bad. Um, uh, Fortunately, brings us to the end of an episode where I didn't actually hate anything we watched. Good grief. Yay. <laughs> Take that, July 2021. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess that will wrap us up. If there's anything you would like to get in touch with us, then why don't you do so? You can do so by email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or twitters at fudsonfilm and facebook.com slash fudsonfilm if you so desire. And until next time, I shall bid you adieu and I'm sure that Drew I will do too. Off you then. I said it and I've done that one. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Ta-da! Bye.